Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to the sixth annual Monday Match Analysis Awards. All year long, Monday Match Analysis is your home for the most in-depth ATP analysis on the internet. Today, and I can't believe it's the sixth time we're doing this, today is the day where we honor the great moments of the year, the great achievements of the year, the things we will remember about the year, a culmination of everything we've seen in 2023. We will go through 11 great categories and honor recipients, uh, players, matches with MMA awards. Thank you for everybody who responded to my tweet, uh, throwing in your suggestions. At the end of the day, uh, I choose what I feel is most deserving of the award, but uh, you guys do a play a big role in making sure that at least I don't forget anything um, because with everybody giving their opinions, I'm at least uh, making sure that nothing goes under the radar for me. So you guys are a big help in that. Let's get into it. Our first award, as always, is the best shot of the year. Last year, it went to J.J. Wolf and his left-handed forehand passing shot, J.J. Wolf being the righty that he is in Miami. And this year, the shot of the year goes to Carlos Alcaraz. It came at the Roland Garros semifinal against Novak Djokovic. Let's take a look at it. Can't use video, copyright reasons, but Djokovic hits a drop shot here. Alcaraz gets there with his speed, but the big problem is that Novak has basically the entire court to volley into. And what does he do? He hits a decent volley into the open court. It looks like it's going to be good enough. Alcaraz desperately tracking backwards, trying to chase down this ball. If he gets there, maybe it'll be a tweener. Oh, what do we have here? Alcaraz turns sideways, slides to his, his forehand side, and does whatever this is. I don't have a name for this shot, but he came up with a spectacular angle. He tucked it right inside the sideline. It had a lot of pace on it. And from this position, it was Novak Djokovic who would lose this point. Alcaraz celebrating. Look at that smile. Djokovic can't help but smile himself. Standing ovation from the crowd at court Philippe Chatrier. And here's another look at it. Alcaraz with the flick of the right wrist somehow creates that. The first thing I'll say about this shot of the year is usually when I go to Twitter and I ask you guys to give me your opinions on what the Monday Match Analysis Awards should be, most people are like, I don't remember a shot. Most people do not suggest a shot of the year. For the first time ever, I got a lot of respondents recalling this shot by Alcaraz. So it was memorable. Uh, it had hype behind it. Uh, and it, it followed a lot of the rules, the guidelines that I use to decide a shot of the year. I'm not looking for hot dogs. I'm not looking for lucky shots. Usually it's an amazing get, check. Usually it's a winner, check. I like it to, to be somewhat rare, to have a uniqueness factor. Not quite to the level of some of the previous shots of the year, but this one still had some of that. 
And uh, I guess this one gets the big match bonus, right? Roland Garros semifinal, entire tennis world watching. And it was also pretty significant in the match. If you'll remember, Alcaraz incredibly tense in the first set. But after hitting this shot and having this moment with the crowd, it did seem to relax him. It set him up to win the second set 7-5. The quality of the second set of that semifinal was, uh, was one of the most spectacular sets that we saw all season. And uh, part of it may be thanks to this shot. And there's just something about Novak Djokovic getting passed in spectacular fashion in big semifinals. U.S. Open 2009 definitely uh, calls back to that. Honorable mention, Wimbledon, Andre Rublev. This is a diving forehand defensive effort that ends up being a winner against Sasha Bublik. Uh, spectacular shot. I, I loved the, the audio of this shot. Just the sound of Bublik's extended grunt because he thought this backhand down the line was going to be a winner. And then the gasp of the crowd realizing that Andre Rublev, not only was it not a winner, but Andre Rublev was going to win the point with a winner of his own. And uh, the commentators, I also loved their reaction as well. Our next category is story of the year, something that happened off court that I want to remember at the Monday Match Analysis Awards. And uh, I always try to do something that feels good, right? Like nothing nothing super dark and, and negative that gets everybody's attention. What's, what's something that feels good? And uh, this year, the story of the year goes to Matja Pekatic, who against all odds was able to live out his dream, play an ATP event, and beat a former top 10 play top 10 player at the Delray Beach Open. Last year, this went to the retirement of Serena Williams and Roger Federer, uh, both just massive stories last year. This one, certainly a little bit more under the radar, but it is a phenomenal story in its own right. If I can refresh you. Matija Pekatic had a good college career at Princeton and ended up going pro, got up to 206 in the world, was on his way up, and ended up just needing a, a minor stomach surgery ahead of the Australian Open. The surgery ended up having disastrous consequences. He got a staph infection as a result of the operation, was in bed for eight months, could barely move. And that really set him back. When he was off, he decided willy-nilly, apply to some business schools and see what happens. Well, he got into Harvard. And it was an opportunity so, so great, he could not pass it up. So he took a couple of years and went back to school, got his master's degree, his business degree at Harvard. After getting his degree, he said, you know what? I'll give the tour one more shot. And if I get up inside the top 250 within the next year, I'll keep dedicating myself to professional tennis. If I don't, that'll be it. Career over. At this point, he's already 30 years old. So he got up to 320 in the world in six months, playing great tennis, doing a lot of winning. Everything was on track. And that is when COVID-19 hit. He went back home. He got a regular job in Florida. He still played tour events here and there, but it became more of a side thing that he did for fun. He couldn't really dedicate himself, and, uh, and he trailed off. So fast forward to February 2023. Matija Pekatic is 784 in the world. Living in Florida, he did try to get into Delray qualifying, but his ranking just wasn't good enough. He wasn't going to get in. He went to uh, pick up his racket from the Stringers at the Delray Beach Tennis Center, and they told him, hey, Matia, don't, 
stick around for a second here because I know you didn't get in, but somebody might drop off. Somebody might drop out of the tournament. So just don't go anywhere. Well, sure enough, last minute withdrawal and Pekatic uh, gets into the qualifying as an alternate. He wins two matches. He plays the first round against Jack Sock. He wins. His first ATP event, 33 years old, beats a former top 10 player. A guy who was training with his 70-year-old boss. A guy who works a 9-to-5 Monday through Friday at a real estate firm called Wexford Capital. There's his LinkedIn profile right there. If you need uh, help with real estate in Florida, Matya Pekatic is your guy. And if you need a win over Jack Sock in the first round, he is also your guy. What a story. A guy who, who deserved to have his moment, was very unlucky, and he got it. Uh, but right out of a movie. I mean, the man, the man had to ask his boss for another day off in order to play an ATP 250 event. Unheard of stuff. Honorable mentions in this category uh, go to the introduction of ATP baseline pay. Uh, I, I suppose that is a positive step in the right direction, although it sounds a little bit better than it actually is. Uh, Madrid cake gate, that was just a fun one, especially on social media. I mean, yes, players had a reason in, in some cases uh, with what happened in Madrid to be genuinely upset, but at the end of the day, this was just kind of hilarious in a can't be real story and also just a masterclass in bad PR by uh, Madrid tournament director Feliciano Lopez. The Emer and Brooksby suspensions on a darker note, I'd say on the ATP side of things, uh, were also consequential stories, somewhat big stories. Uh, it was a quieter year off the court, honestly, but uh, I'm pretty happy to award story of the year to Matya Pekatic and his terrific Cinderella story. Our next category is Comeback Player of the Year. Somebody who uh, suffered a severe injury or some kind of major setback and came back strong in 2023. Last year it was Borna Choric. This year, the Monday Match Analysis Award goes to Gail Monfis. Monfils suffered a pretty bad foot or ankle lower extremity injury last year in Cincinnati. He did not play a match from last year in Cincinnati to Indian Wells this year. It's about nine months. He came back, just didn't look good at all. Didn't look like the same athlete. He lost his first seven completed matches this year. Got his first win against Sebastian Baez at Roland Garros, it was memorable. It was a wild one. The crowd, the drama, great comeback by Monfils. And then immediately had to withdraw from his following match with the wrist injury. So you're starting to assess things for Monfils. Here's a 36-year-old ranked 322 in the world at the time with just one real win in the last nine months. I won't sugarcoat it. It kind of felt like it was over for Monfils. Kind of felt like the swan song was coming. Like, you know, maybe he'd be a guy who, whose last year or so would be taking wild cards and, you know, maybe just one final go around on tour, but not much more. But boy, did he, did he reverse any kind of that thought? He had several top 20 wins over the North American hardcourt swing. From Washington, D.C. forward, he only lost in the first round once. He made a Masters 1000 quarterfinal in Cincinnati. And best of all, he won another title. Title number 12 of his career in Stockholm. He became only the fourth player since 1990 to win a title over the age of 37. Roger Federer, Ivo Karlovic, Feliciano Lopez, and Gail Monfils. He also extended his streak, which is a marvelous streak, 19th straight year, making at least one ATP level final. He's up to 74 in the world. Remember, he was 322 after Roland Garros. And not only was it somewhat unexpected, 
but it was also just uh, a very welcome surprise, a pleasant surprise, because the tour is a better place with Monfils in the mix. And it's not going to be much longer, but the end of this year was a triumph for Lamont, and he showed that he still has a lot more in him. Honorable mentions here, Jan Lennard Struff, he had a bad start to 2022, ended up fracturing his toe and missing clay court season last year. Couldn't really get things going at any point. And uh, even at the beginning of this year, it was kind of hard. He came into the year 167 in the world, but he ended up having one of his best years of his career and actually breaking new ground in his career. Uh, as a, a lucky loser in Madrid, he beat Pass in the quarters. He ended up making the final as a lucky loser. Biggest ever final for Struff. First ever lucky loser to make a Masters 1000 final. And if he beats Alcaraz in that match, there's no doubt that he wins this Monday Match Analysis Award. He ended up uh, making another final in Stuttgart. He hit a new career high of 21 in the world this year. Terrific comeback season for Jan Leonard Struff and uh, definitely deserves an honorable mention here. Uh, also, Alexander Zverev came back from his gruesome injury last year at Roland Garros to finish this year in the top eight. Huge success for Sasha. Uh, why didn't he get this award? I mean, he didn't really break any new ground in his career. Uh, his return to form was uh, far less surprising than Monfils's return to form. And uh, th there were also some off-court things that, that took away from some of the stuff he did on court this year. Let's go to match comeback of the year. Last year, this went to Rafael Nadal in the Australian Open final, coming back from two sets to love down against Daniil Medvedev. This year, it is yet another Australian Open match. The Monday Match Analysis Award goes to Andy Murray for yet another two sets to love comeback against Tanasi Kokonakis down under. What makes a comeback great? Why do we love comebacks? We love them because we can't see them coming. We love them because we can't imagine them in the moment. They are unexpected. And they show us what's inside the heart of these champions because they don't give up when they could have given up. And certainly that applies to Andy Murray, who at this Australian Open beat Matteo Berrettini in the first round. It was his best win at a slam since his 2019 hip surgery. It was a big deal for Murray in the first round. Took him four hours, 49 minutes to beat Berrettini. Um, he had to save a match point. Massive moment, but it wasn't the moment for Murray at this year's Australian Open because in the next round, he'd battled Tanasi Kokonakis in a match that began at 10.10 p.m. Melbourne time. Kokonakis won the first set 6-4. He won the second set 7-6. He served for the match at 5-3 in the third. And uh, this hardly felt surprising. Because for the past two seasons, Murray had a winning record in first-round matches, but a losing record in second-round matches. And since Murray's hip surgery in 2019, he had won three five-set matches. But all three times, he had lost in the next round in straight sets. With Kokonakis serving at 5-3 in the third, you thought, here we go again. There is no reason to believe Andy could win this match. But at 35 years old, with a metal hip, after a near five-hour first-round match, Murray did come back to win this one. For his 10th, check that, 11th, two sets to love comeback in his career, winning the longest match of his career, clocking in at five hours, 45 minutes, winning the match, at 4.05 a.m. in the morning, Murray completes this comeback. In my opinion, a somewhat obvious choice for match comeback of the year. Honorable mention, it goes to uh, Alex Mulchan in Kitzbühel. Uh, he was down a set in 5-love, even faced two match points at 5-love against Sebastian Offner. Uh, but he went on to win seven straight games, win the second set 7-5, win a third set tie break, 
In Offner's native Austria, by the way, uh, it's nearly impossible to think up a more extreme comeback. So honorable mention going to Alex Molchan. Again, a set, five love, two match points coming back against Sebastian Offner in Kitzbühel. Our next category is most improved player. Last year, it went to Carlos Alcaraz. It's only fitting that this year, the Monday Match Analysis Award goes to Yannick Sinner. Well, the word I, I always used to describe Alcaraz's rise last year was meteoric. Sinner, his improvement had been slow and steady, but you can't really say that about this year. This was a leap. There is nothing surprising about Sinner's ascent. Uh, most folks believed that Yannick would, would get to that elite tier eventually, uh, but the midseason growth that I saw from him was some of the best I've ever seen covering the sport, some of the most dramatic and uh, impressive that I've ever seen covering this sport. Last year, let's rewind to last year, there were several things holding Sinner back. Uh, one was the physicality. He faded late in tournaments. He was never injured severely, but he picked up small injuries frequently. And uh, his serve and the lack of variety were weaknesses that hurt him against top tier competition. Before this year, his record against top 15 players was one win, 15 losses. This year at Roland Garros, he lost in the first round and he used that extra time up until grass court season to change his serve technique mid-season, shortening the take back, adjusting to a pinpoint stance footwork. He also worked hard on his volleys and his drop shots all year with his coaches, Darren Cahill and Simone uh, Vagnosi. And uh, at times, those things were a struggle. At times, they were maybe hurting him in matches. But by the end of the year, he knew that the repetition uh, that, that he was going to gain from continuing to try to develop those weapons were going to pay off. And they did. So this year... His record against top five players was 10 and five. He won seven of his last eight, including two against Novak Djokovic. And as for his durability, he played 79 matches this year, only five less than the tour leader, Daniil Medvedev. There were no injuries of note. His ranking rose from 15 at the start of the year to four to finish the year. And there's no doubt that he made that leap to elite status. So Sinner, uh, you know, yes, it wasn't the, the biggest rankings rise you'll see. It wasn't a guy who came out of nowhere. It wasn't a guy who came from outside the top 100. But he really did, as, as impressively as you can possibly do it, he closed the gap from the, the upper class to the elite. Honorable mention here, uh, Chris Eubanks. Amazing moments from him in his uh, in his 27 years old season, top 100 debut after making the quarterfinal in Miami, first ATP title in Mallorca, major quarterfinal for him at Wimbledon. He beat Tsitsipas there. He had Medvedev on the ropes there. He would have been a worthy pick for uh, for most improved player, especially because you don't see players north of 25 years old suddenly make the the kind of leaps that that Christopher Eubanks made this year. So uh, Eubanks is also a, a worthy nod and an honorable mention for most improved player of the year. Next category is newcomer of the year. Last year that went to one Holger Runa. And this year the choice is the American, the left-hander, Ben Shelton with a Monday Match Analysis Award. This was Ben Shelton's first full season on tour, and it didn't take long for him to make headlines. What a story it was, as he had never left the United States until traveling to Melbourne for the Australian Open, and then he made the quarterfinals there. Certainly took advantage of a weaker draw, uh, but but he he announced himself you know right away with uh, a run to the last eight at a slam. His year would take a, a strange twist. Never won back-to-back -back matches until 
the last major of the year. So there was not a lot of success at ATP level. There was a, uh, a learning curve for Ben Shelton, undoubtedly. But, you know, there, there's something about Ben. He loves the big stage. He'd worked hard on adjustments with his father, Brian, who took over as head coach midway through the year. And in New York, he had a run that was far more impressive than even the one that we saw in Australia. He beat Tommy Paul, who, by the way, was the one who took him out in the Aussie Open quarters. He beat another fellow American under the ash lights in Francis Tiafo in such a big match in prime time, night crowd. He looked like he was at home, even more so than Tiafo, who'd been there before. Made the semis, lost to Novak Djokovic. Um, so he won up his run from Australia, and he made sure not to end the season without having a successful event outside the slams because uh, he won his first title serving the lights out at the ATP 500 in Tokyo, uh, a win over Yannick Sinner in that one that would age really, really well. And uh, a good way for Shelton to, to, to end the year with, with another big run and, uh, and his first career title. Started the year 96 in the world, ended 17 in the world, and uh, he did it, did it in, in style. He's an attention-grabbing player, uh, eye-catching, explosive athleticism and shot-making, plays with a confidence and a bravado that you either love or you hate. Uh, there is not a single newcomer on tour who is more talked about or who is more impactful at the biggest events other than Ben Shelton. Honorable mention goes to Arthur Feast. Went from outside the top 200 uh, to finishing at 36 in the world. Unlike Ben, uh, Feast did the majority of his damage at ATP 250s. Won his first career title in Lyon. Made the final in Antwerp. Semis in Montpellier and Marseille. And also a run of the semis at the ATP 500 in Hamburg. Tremendous athlete for his age. His forehand is extremely heavy, and I'm looking forward to what see, to seeing what he does from here. An honorable mention, no doubt, for Artur Fis. Next category is best tournament run of the year. Last year, this went to Carlos Alcaraz in Madrid, who, uh, if you don't remember, beat Nadal, Djokovic, and Zverev, quarterfinal, semifinal, final. Uh, this year, the Monday match analysis goes to Daniil Medvedev. Now, this is uh, probably the most subjective category in terms of, you know, what the criteria really is. But usually this goes to a title run that was both impressive and surprising. And just in terms of the, the storyline that, that went along with Medvedev's run in Rome, that's really what made this so special. Because the most famous surface weakness at the top of the men's game was by far... Daniil Medvedev on clay. If you asked anybody, what's an example of why surfaces matter in tennis? What's an example of a player who just doesn't like a particular surface? Everybody would tell you Daniil Medvedev cannot win on clay. And he helped along that narrative himself by saying things like, I don't want to play on this surface on a changeover in Madrid. Or if you like to play in the dirt like a dog, then I don't judge. He said that in Rome. And, you know, his record on clay was also mediocre from 2020 to 2022. He was only nine wins to seven losses. And heading into Rome, there were some signs that his level on clay was stabilizing. But what he did at the Italian Open was a mega leap of shocking proportions. He beat Emil Rusevori in straights. He faced his first uh, real clay test in... Uh, Clay specialist Bernabe Zapata Marias and one in three. Then he saw Zverev, who had six career clay titles at the time to Medvedev zero. Uh, Medvedev had beaten Sasha in uh, third set tie breaks twice prior. This time he took care of him in two sets. Next was the inform Yannick Hoffman. Then came Tsitsipas, who routined Medvedev at Roland Garros two years ago. Medvedev won this one in straight sets to set up a final against Holger Runa 
and he won that final 7-5-7-5. Medvedev said after the tournament he gave himself a 2% chance to win. And not only did he do it with, with little expectation, uh, he did it with a tough draw, and he won most of his matches decisively. It completely changed how we looked at, at Daniil Medvedev heading into Roland Garros and uh, sparked a lot of fun debate, a lot of fun discourse heading into Paris, which was objectively exciting. Medvedev was not only the Rome champion, but also the race leader and a former major champion. I certainly considered him among the contenders to make the final weekend in Paris, and I wasn't alone, uh, which might set us up for may, may or may not you'll have to see our next category uh we might be talking about this again uh but it was in terms of like what was the most fun storyline when it comes to title runs combined with with something that's impressive and something that is interesting it's medvedev's title run in rome where uh you know the forehand was key he was generating more pace on it than ever before his attitude was finally competitive and uh, he became at least somewhat comfortable moving and all these things enabled him to do something that, that he never thought he'd be able to do, winning a big title on clay. And I don't think anybody thought that he would be able to do it. Honorable mentions. Alcaraz at Wimbledon. You know, the final against Novak is the one we'll remember, and it was amazing. But easy to forget all the great work Alcaraz did in the lead-up to that match. He took out Medvedev 3-3-3 three, three, and three in the semis. He beat Runa in straights. Uh, Berrettini in the fourth round, former Wimbledon finalist. Nicholas Jari, big hitter, big server in the third round. I thought Alcaraz got the worst draw out of the top four. And similar to Medvedev in Rome, even though he had just won Queens, he challenged some of the conventional thought, the conventional wisdom about his ability to win on this particular surface. So Alcaraz at Wimbledon with an honorable mention. Uh, really couldn't blame you if, if you thought that that this should have won the award. Um, you know, just tough to say, and I try to spread the wealth a little bit. I feel like, I feel like Medvedev's season should have fit in here somewhere, and uh, that definitely played into my decision-making. Another honorable mention goes to Sinner in Beijing. Hard to imagine it going to an ATP 500 run, but uh, Sinner in Beijing certainly tested that theory because he beat Alcaraz pretty decisively to taking a 4-3 head-to-head lead in that head-to-head. And then for the first time ever, he was 0-6. He took out Daniil Medvedev in a, a brilliant performance. This was uh, his best title run ever, even better than the Masters 1000 he won earlier in the year in Canada. And uh, it was important as he clearly continued the momentum from there and had himself basically as good a post-U.S. Open run, uh, indoor fall run, if you will, as you possibly can. Let us go on now to upset of the year. Best upset last year. It went to Tim von Reithoven, who was able to run the table in Hertogenbosch. This year, the upset goes to Fabian Moroshan and his win in Rome over Carlitos Alcaraz. First, let's talk about where Alcaraz was at at this point in time. He was five points off the number one ranking. He was on a 13-match win streak. He was 30-2 and two on the year and hadn't lost a match prior to a semifinal. One of those two losses was uh, partially due to an injury. So we had barely seen him lose. Yannick Sinner in Miami, really the only time we'd seen Alcaraz lose. Now let's talk about Marojan. He came into this week, the week of Rome, with zero top 100 wins in his career. Zero tour level wins. Limited success on the Challenger Tour in the month of April in the weeks leading up to Rome. Very much an unheralded player going up against the hottest player on tour on his favorite surface on a 13-match win streak. Well, Marajan won the first set. I think it was six games to three. And then, you know, you go along, okay, you know, first set of the week for Alcaraz, probably just 
maybe getting his feet under him, getting getting used to things. Marojan lost a, a love 40 opportunity in the match, and you thought, in the second set, I should say, and you thought, oh, that was his chance. There's no way an upset was happening. It goes to a tie break, and he goes down 4-1 in the second set tie break. You're thinking, okay, you know, this is it. Close call. Great effort by Marojan. From 4-1 down in the second set tie break, he wins this match by winning six consecutive points. And Marojan pulls off the upset. Most people who watched this match, including uh, Paul Anacone, who called the match for Tennis Channel and then guessed it on Monday Match Analysis, most people who saw the match didn't think Alcaraz played that badly. But Marojan came in here, played bold, aggressive, and uh, flashed an incredible amount of ability and talent. And look, top players who are in form lose matches all the time, but it is rarely at the hands of someone as green or as inexperienced as Marojan. And, you know, since then, Fabian has established himself a bit more, uh, even making the quarters of Shanghai. He's uh, 64 in the world now, and we're going to start to see him more. Uh, but at the time, this was absolutely stunning. And we won't forget ever how loudly Fabian Marojan burst onto the scene with this particular victory. It is the kind of upset that, uh, that I believe we only see once every five to ten years in terms of uh, somebody who had accomplished so little at the time beating somebody who's flying so high at the very, very top of the game. Honorable mention in this category going to Tiago Zybach-Vilch. Yes, that is how to say his name. Uh, beating Daniil Medvedev in the first round at Roland Garros. This was the narrative going the other direction. Uh, the whiplash, if you will, to the Daniil Medvedev clay court story. As uh, after winning the title in Rome, Medvedev loses first round at Roland Garros. Vilch with a return to mainstream relevancy after winning Santiago at 19 years old, young Brazilian uh, showing a lot of promise, uh, you know, really kind of suffered a lot of setbacks in his career, but uh, did good work on the Challenger Tour in the lead up to this one and performed incredibly well here against Medvedev. Uh, the forehand on a windy day, Vilch's forehand was a marvel in this match. I got to say, a top player... At a major, losing a five-setter like this, um, especially after being down uh, two sets to one. In a normal year, this wins it. Vilch would have won upset of the year. Uh, I just think the the Marajan upset of Alcaraz was, was too rare uh, for it not to win this award. But, uh, man, this was a really good honorable mention. And, um, yeah, just a... Just a, one of those slam upsets that, that gets everybody buzzing in the first couple days of a major. Next category, uh, there's only three more. It's only three more, and uh, these are these are high honors. You know, these next couple categories are are really great honors. Um, some of the things that we remember best for the year. The next one is best single match performance, and the Monday Match Analysis Award goes to. Novak Djokovic, his win at the year-end championship in the final over Yannick Sinner. This category uh, generally goes to, uh, it's generally reserved for a dominant performance. Usually in a big final, almost always in a big final. And it's about the level for me. How impressive was the tennis? How great was the tennis? For most of this match, Djokovic was just about as unplayable as I've ever seen him. You heard some of these things on Monday Match Analysis recently, but uh, Djokovic with an ace rate of 28%, fourth highest ever in his career, against one of the hardest players in the world to ace in Yannick Sinner. He won 29 of 32 first serve points. He was hitting great, unattackable second serves, sliced low into Sinner's forehand. From the baseline, he was going nuclear off of his forehand. Djokovic averaging 79 miles per hour on his forehand. It was even higher in the first set. It was up above 80 miles per hour in the first set. Um, but for the match, he only made four 
unforced errors on his forehand. Sinner made 18. And on the backhand, Novak was redirecting uh, down the line at every single opportunity he could. And you could also create, you know, such a, a great montage or, or highlight reel of backhands down the line that Novak executed so beautifully in this match. It ended up being scoreline 6-3, 6-3. And Novak, you know, for the first time in the match, you know, maybe at the very end, just let off a, a hair. But I... You know, for 75% of this match, I don't think any man could have could have done anything about um, Novak Djokovic. They would have had no answer for his level. And that's why, to me, it's performance of the year. Sinner's form also adds to it. You know, Yannick Sinner in his last 14 match of, matches of the year, this was his only loss. He was on a six-match win streak against top five players. And one of those wins was against Novak Djokovic in the round-robin stage. So Novak was able to deliver not only a reversal, but a, an emphatic reversal. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, next week, the Davis Cup win for Sinner, but I can't take that into account here whatsoever. It doesn't take away from what Novak did. And quite frankly, this, you know, winning a year-end championship, which is the fifth biggest title of the year, um, it's, a, it's a timely performance for Novak Djokovic, and that plays into this one. The funny thing is... And I, I suppose we can say this gets into honorable mentions. Djokovic won three major finals in straight sets this year. Honorable mention also to Alcaraz defeating Medvedev at Indian Wells and at Wimbledon. I prefer the Indian Wells performance. I thought the level of tennis was better there. Um, it's still, in my opinion, the best Alcaraz has played a match from start to finish. Incredible combo of serve and volley, drop shots, uh, consistent forehand aggression, baseline consistency. Uh, he won that one 6-3, 6-2. And then Wimbledon, it was uh, it was more about the, the short point stuff for Alcaraz. Medvedev could barely get into rallies with the way Alcaraz was attacking the plus one shot, rifling second serve returns, and beating Medvedev in that match 6-3, 6-3, 6-3. Next category is match of the year. The Monday Match Analysis Award goes Two, Novak Djokovic versus Carlos Alcaraz. Wimbledon final, a five-set victory for Carlos Alcaraz to win his second career major title. Last year, uh, this went to Alcaraz, another Alcaraz win when he beat Sinner in the U.S. Open quarterfinal. And I said last year that every great match has a great backstory. I talked about how Sinner had beaten Alcaraz twice in a row coming into that U.S. Open match. And this was somewhat similar because we were only a month removed from Alcaraz cramping in the third set against Djokovic in a highly anticipated Roland Garros semifinal. Uh, and, you know, that plus Djokovic's Wimbledon dominance plus Alcaraz's grass inexperience made it so that Novak was the clear favorite in this one. This was a, a total, totally different perspective coming into this match. And Alcaraz had to change his perspective, and he had to make some key adjustments to his mindset. In Paris, he was extremely tense, and at Wimbledon, he had to find a sense of calm, maybe even some enjoyment. He called it the best day of his life before he even played the match. Before he played the match, he called it the best day of his life. And he ended up playing bona fide Nerve-free tennis. It was an amazing mental triumph by Alcaraz. But Djokovic, he brought some great tennis too. And, you know, he came so close to being able to win this match. There were a few missed opportunities that would be talked about a ton. Uh, set point in the second set to go up two sets to love. In the second set tie break, Djokovic missed a backhand. And then another one on the next point at the tail end of that tie break. And in the fifth set, Novak actually had the first break chance. But a defensive lob off of an impressive scramble by Alcaraz uh, that kind of just got into the wind and got very awkward for Djokovic, who elected to hit a forehand drive volley instead of hitting an overhead and put it into the net. From there, and even in that game, honestly, Alcaraz played 
one of the more one of the more mind-blowing fifth sets you will ever see. It was a perfect representation of what makes Alcaraz so special. Novak did not a lot wrong and made very few errors, but Alcaraz delivered a barrage of varied attack. He was ferocious moving forward. He used his touch. He used his power. His movement, turning defense into offense on the run. Even the serve was huge. He consolidated his break in the fifth set with four swings of the racket, four unreturned serves. And when it was time to serve it out, he went down love 30 at 5-4. At 30-all, he had a service winner. On championship point, he made his first serve, executed a plus-one forehand, and won the point with it. And it was the, the match, the magnitude of win that, that we've, we haven't seen from a young player. We hadn't seen in over a decade a young player beating a big three member in a major final. And especially Djokovic at Wimbledon. Djokovic had won 11 of his last 13 slam finals. Djokovic had won four straight major finals that went to a fifth set. Djokovic had won eight straight fifth sets overall. Djokovic was 10-1 lifetime in fifth sets at Wimbledon with his last loss coming in 2006. And Alcaraz overcoming all of those historical trends to become the first non-Big Four player to win Wimbledon since 2002. The historical significance of the match, the competitiveness of the match, and even the quality make it a no-brainer for me. Match of the year. That said, honorable mention, and a lot of people did uh, vouch for this in the replies, uh, Djokovic beating Alcaraz in Cincinnati. Truly one of the most twisty-turny matches I've ever seen uh, incredible back-and-forth drama, tremendous effort from Djokovic to turn it around, overcoming some physical issues. And it, it even might have offered more highlight-worthy moments than the Wimbledon match. Ultimately, the big difference is it wasn't a major final. Um, also an honorable mention to Sinner defeating Djokovic at the ATP Finals. Every set in this one, all three of them were intense. Reminded me of a lot of the great team versus Djokovic matches. A lot of the great Vavrinka versus Djokovic matches. Otherworldly baseline power meeting the best hardcore defender of all time. And uh, a terrific environment for Sinner in Italy. Huge moment in his career. Yannick coming up with the goods in the end. That is also worthy of an honorable mention for match of the year. And we will end it without further ado, of course, on Player of the Year. And your 2023 Monday Match Analysis of Player of the Year goes to one Novak Djokovic. It was one of the most amazing displays of age defiance in the history of sports, in my opinion. Djokovic having one of his greatest seasons at 36 years old. He won four out of the five biggest events of the year. Um, came just one match away from the calendar slam. I didn't realize this until trying to choose performance of the year. But in all four of those five biggest events, his wins came in straight sets. Dominance. His Australian Open run was one of the most dominant runs of his career, if you just look at the score lines. That's where um, he tied in the slam race. He joined Nadal as the only man to have double-digit wins at a single major, his 10th Australian Open. He went on to win Roland Garros. That is when he took the lead in the slam race. His third Roland Garros title, giving him uh, three or more titles at all four slams. The only man to do that. In New York, similar to Australia, you know, where part of it was returning to, a to an event that he wasn't allowed to play last year. But in this case, it was an event he hadn't won since 2018. It's a lot of things going against him uh, since 2018. And yet again, he ripped through the second week without coming close to losing a single match. Um, he won nearly 90% of his total matches this year. 
his eighth year-end number one. He hit 400 total weeks at number one, which is also a record. Pantheon year, one of the greatest of his career. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me, other than once again just fending off the inevitable you know, decline that every athlete eventually goes through, when it comes to physicality and athleticism. His forehand was a level up this year. It was massive in the Australian Open final and the Roland Garros final and the year-end championship final in particular. Uh, at the U.S. Open, never have his volleys been so important in him winning a major title. Never. So here we are. Djokovic, nine years older than the next youngest man in the top 10, who is Daniil Medvedev. Nine years older, and yet he is a total slam dunk, no-brainer for 2023 Player of the Year. This has been the sixth annual Monday Match Analysis Awards. Uh, let me know uh, where you know you agreed, where you disagreed, but more than anything, uh, talk about what was memorable uh, to you in this comment section if you'd like. And I will certainly be reading those responses. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.